Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. My dad was from a different generation and, you know, there weren't, I mean, he did go to teacher parent conferences when he could. (laughs) He never saw me perform as a kid. He was always on the road. Um, And so there was this, I really got that it was like, and I'm not saying he is Picasso, but I get it. It's like people like that have to kind of let the muse run their lives and I paid a price for it and he paid a huge price for it physically and emotionally. Um, but if I, if, if there's like, if there is reincarnation and some sort of karma and you pick your parents or whatever, I'm glad I picked my parents. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Glad to have you here. For those of you coming for the first time, welcome, welcome, welcome. And for those of you who are coming back again and again, thank you so much for all your support. You have no idea how much it means to me that you've subscribed, that you pass it on to people that you encourage them to listen and subscribe as well. It's truly humbling, and I really appreciate it. If you need to reach me, you can do so at BarryCats at Twitter or Instagram or at BarryCats.com, and I will be glad to get back to you as soon as I possibly can. Have a great show for you today, Kelly Carlin. Without further ado, I will give a very unique introduction for her because she is a really, really special, special artist. But it should be noted that we're going to get into a lot of details about what it's like to be an artist, what it's like to write, what it's like to produce, what it's like to direct, but also what it's like to live with and have your father be George Carlin. 
Kelly Carlin grew up in Los Angeles and went to Crossroads Private School and was living in a household that was far from normal. She was a producer on the innovative and critically acclaimed Paul Provenza show, The Green Room, on Showtime. And Paul directed her solo show she debuted at the Montreal Just for Laughs Festival. Additionally, she has a Sirius XM show entitled The Kelly Carlin Show and is on the board of advisors of the National Comedy Center, which is one of the most amazing places to go in terms of comedy in the world. Her father not only hosted the first episode of Saturday Night Live in 1975, but he created, wrote, produced, and starred in 14 hour-long comedy specials. His routines from the Indian sergeant to the stupid disc jockey to the hippy-dippy weatherman all the way to the seven words you can't say on television became etched in a country and a world's brain. The influence of her father certainly shaped Kelly Carlin's life in a way that only she can understand and tell it, as documented in her memoir, A Carlin Home Companion, which is really incredible. I know you're going to like my guest today a lot. I have so much respect for her father. He was one of the greatest influence in my comedy life. But I have an equal amount of respect for my guest today. Truly, please welcome Kelly Carlin. Hello, everybody. <laughs> How you doing? Doing good. I sit around here in these beautiful chairs that you had me sit in here that were Gary Shandling's chairs that we're sitting in. Yes. I look around here and these odd things come to me. <laughs> So I just want to share them with you. I love odd things. Very symbolic things come to me. So for our audience, this room is the size of a miniature train car that's carrying cargo. It's probably about 10 feet by 24 feet, maybe 12 by 24. It's got a wood ceiling. It's got glass doors that have three panels in them that are three feet wide, probably. And it has a fireplace, and it has a barbecue built in. And it feels like it's from the 1940s or 50s or 60s. It feels like some place that her father would have lived in or would have... <laughs> had a part of a house he was in. <laughs> this is actually my more my mother's space, Barry. There's a upright piano, another older upright piano, and on it is a Beatles song, sheet music, eight days a week, which when I met Kelly recently, I thought to myself, this person wishes they had another day in the week. <laughs> and then I look up and there's a old calendar that says the wrong day on it. But there's also a company name, which I presume is her company name or Actually, somebody's. No. It was my parents' first company name. It says Uptight Enterprises, which when I did meet Kelly recently, 
although she probably wouldn't want me to say this, I felt that there was an enormous amount of restrained angst <laughs> inside her. And oh, and that uptight, by the way, is, you know, like the old uptight, out of sight. Yeah. That kind of uptight. Yeah, Because my dad was the hippest man in the room, so, you know. And so there's a real interesting feel for me here, and I feel very at home with you, even as odd as it sounds, because we don't have smell-o-vision in this fabulous <laughs> podcast. Yet. It has a smell of something that's older, something that my mother, it seems familiar to me. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, I'm sitting here in between an old table, yet, oddly enough, an orchid. Which is also for Mr. Shandling's house. It goes with the chairs. His maid gave it to me when I was there. She said, I can't give this to any of the male comics. They'll kill it. You take it. (laughs) And it's still alive, by the way, people. Incredible. Yeah. I have so many things to ask you. The first thing I wanted to ask you, and I wanted to couch it in a different way that I shared in a similar way a long time ago on the podcast. But I remember when I first met with Tony Rock, I said, most comics go on stage and they have this anxiety. Is Lopez going to walk in the room and go on before me? Is Dane Cook going to come in and go on before me? Is somebody who is going to enter the room and destroy the place before I go on and and then I have to follow that and I have to somehow stay who I am inside and who I'm true to my voice but I have to follow somebody who's changed the course of the audience and the room and I said to him your issue is the person that you have to follow every time you go on stage is never in the room going on before you. And it's your brother. I said, what happens when you walk into a room, is people say, hey, look, that's Chris's brother. Mm-hmm. And I said, your only goal in your career with whatever your journey is and whatever things you decide to do when they all are said and done, your goal should be that when somebody sees Chris on stage, they say, hey, look, that's Chris Rock. That's Tony Rock's brother. (laughs) And when I sit across from you, in an odd way, I feel the same way that Tony feels or felt. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people out there listening that do a lot of different things. They have siblings, they have parents who do things. And so I think the first thing I wanted to talk about was because you have this incredible artist inside you that's a writer and a producer, somebody who goes on stage, and I saw the entire one-person show you sent me up until 2.30 in the morning, and I couldn't go to sleep. I was riveted by it. Mm Mm-hmm. I loved the book. I was scanning through it till I fell asleep probably 3.30 in the morning this morning because there's just something really special about you and how you do things in your story. But I'd love you to tell our audience 
when's the first time you knew that there's pressure on me as an artist and as a person in the world, not pressure because my mom's doing this and my dad's doing that and the IRS is here, Mm -hmm. not that kind of pressure. Right, right. The pressure, the first time as a young person when you said, shit, how am I going to make my mark in this world when this guy is making one of the greatest marks in history? Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of that was really unconscious for me. I didn't know it was running me that I was in competition with my dad in some way. Like I didn't, I didn't recognize that at first. And so I kept, I wanted to initially be, I mean, really initially I wanted to be Carol Burnett, you know, or on SNL. I mean, those are the, that was kind of my, that sketch comedy thing. And, um, and I just didn't, I had no clue at all how to go about that and let myself get distracted with other things. But I think for me, the first time I really, really started wrestling with it was when my mother died. I was 34 and she was way too young when she died. She was almost, uh, she would have been 58. In June of 97. In June of 97. And the minute, not the minute, but when she died, there's something about a parent dying in your life. Because no matter what, we're all in the shadow of our parents also. And when she died, there was suddenly more room for me in the world. And I also, like, death became a really real thing. And I had been tap dancing around my my desire to be in showbiz for quite a while. I mean... Well, I mean, even before that, my dad got the the Fox sitcom, the George Carlin show, and my husband and I were writing spec scripts at the time because I wanted to be a writer. It was like, I don't know if I can be in front of the camera, but I know I want to be a writer. And um, Bob and I were writing spec scripts and my dad got the show and Sam Simon uh, was the showrunner from the Simpsons, from the Simpsons. Yeah. One of the, one of the originators. Passed away about five years ago. Yeah. Something like that. And, um, and he read some of our spec scripts and um, gave us notes and was really generous about it and stuff. And then once they went over to Warner brothers, um, I don't really understand what happened, but Sam basically stopped speaking to me or looking at me. Um, it had this kind of hard and fast rule about narcissism. Uh, narcissism, how funny <laughs> I said that. <laughs> I meant um, had a hard and fast rule about um, nepotism and uh, and didn't want my husband and I pitching to the show. And I was like, my my whole thing was always, I don't want a... I don't want to leg up. I don't want an advantage, but this town is based on relationships. And if, if a door can crack because of something, I know that in order for me to step into the room, I have to bring the goods. I absolutely have to bring the goods. I wouldn't have it any other way. I don't want to be a fake. I don't want to be a dilettante. I don't want to be someone doing me a favor, but people give people chances in this town because of who they know. That's how any industry works, actually. If my dad worked in the clothing industry, it would work the same way, too. So, But I knew I had to, to show up. And um, and so Bob and I pitched. We knew we couldn't pitch anything to Sam, so we pitched something to my dad. 
And uh, my dad loved the idea. So my dad pitched it to Sam and Sam loved the idea. And then my dad said, oh, it's Kelly and Bob's idea. And they ended up doing it. And it was in that moment that I realized like, oh, this is, this is complicated. Like, I don't get to just be a nobody, invisible person who is a good writer. I come with this other set of expectations and these other things. And I had started watching people doing solo show work. And really, that was in some way, very much my heart's desire, because I didn't, I never wanted to be a stand up had no desire to be a stand up. I don't have the, I can make people laugh, I'm funny, but I don't have that singular jugular go for the jugular kind of drive you have to have to be a stand-up and and I didn't even think about it as in terms of like oh I'd have to be like a stand-up in my dad's world but when I started doing the storytelling and solo show stuff and started getting interested in it I remember my dad saying to me you don't want to be a stand-up do you and what he was really saying was you know, it would be really extra hard for you to go out and be a Carlin on the stage because there's so many, so much expectation around that. And I know he was protecting me, A, from road life and B, from horrible hecklers. <laughs> he was being a dad. He was literally being a dad in that moment. Of course, my low self-esteem in the moment was like, oh, he doesn't think I'm funny. He doesn't think I have the chops. Um, so I, I kind of... Uh, took that in, in, in the wrong slot, but he was trying to protect me. And I think it was really after I kind of put all this on the side burner, Barry, I really did. I unconsciously never really dealt with that. I was in competition artistically with my dad until he died. And then he died. And I remember, uh, I invited a couple of comics. We, We had a very small memorial I invited Bill Maher, Gary Shandling, and Lewis Black to my dad's memorial. I remember asking Adam McKay a question when he does an extraordinary movie, like the last two he's done. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of friends who... Oh, that he could put in the movies? Put in the movies. <laughs> yeah. But he has to choose one for each role, and then there's none left. So were there artists that felt even though it was a tragedy and it was a difficult situation where their artists when they found out that you only invited those three were disappointed then no my dad didn't have friends <laughs> my dad did not hang out with comics my dad was not friends with comics there we did not have comedians in our life i didn't know any of these comedians until my dad died i knew I mean, I'd met a few people at like awards shows and things, but my dad didn't do social. My dad was a a writer who lived a writer's life and was on the road. He hated socializing. He hated hanging out after shows with comics and going to the diner. He was never that guy. We never had parties at our house. There was never comedians around. None of that, you know, and yet he also craved community. So when he died, I'm the one, some of them started calling me and, you know, just to send their condolences to me. And a few of them I spoke with and knew that he respected and loved. And so I knew he had a connection with. So I invited them. Uh, some of them were on the East Coast and couldn't make it. Um, but, uh, you know, th- there were I knew that Bill and Gary and Lewis 
those three guys, their lives have been changed by my dad in some very particular way in their career trajectory and the choices they made. Did your dad ever talk about those three and their comedy and say, God, I love what Bill's doing. I love what Gary's doing. I love what Lewis is doing. My dad and I did not have a lot of conversations about comedy or the business or his work at all. Um, he never let me see his work until it was ready for HBO. Like, I didn't get to go down to the Comedy Magic Club and watch him work it out. I didn't even know he went to the Comedy Magic Club and was working out material. I, I live on the way. <laughs> I had no idea till after he died. And Mike Lacey came around in my life is like, hey, anything you ever need, we're family. We're part of your I mean, it was, you know, this is what happened to me. I didn't know these connections. Now, I knew about Gary because Gary had told the story about how when he was 17 or when he was 19, he was in engineering school at ASU in Tucson. And my dad was doing a gig in Phoenix and Gary drove all the way from Tucson to Phoenix with uh, Gary had written about five pages for my dad of comedy. Found my dad at the club in the afternoon. Hello, Mr. Carlin. I've written some material for you. Da, 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 da. My dad said, well, I don't, I write my own material, but I, I'd be willing to look at it if you want. Um, come back tomorrow and I'll let you, I'll give you some notes. And of course, Gary had to drive two hours all the way back to Tucson, two hours back, did. My dad held his word, had read it all, had notes and said to Gary, there's something good on each one of these pages. There's something really good here. Um, you know, you're, you know, you know what you're doing. You should do this. And that helped propel Gary to leave engineering school and move to L.A. Um, wow. Yeah. So Gary told that story when Gary gave my dad the Lifetime Achievement Award at the Comedy Awards. And my dad got up to accept the award and said to the audience, I apologize to all of you for Gary Shandling. <laughs> uh, Lewis, the same thing. My dad had seen him on Late Night. And um, my, this is what my dad would do. This, I found out all this stuff after my dad died. My dad would do things like this. He would hear a new comic, see a young comic on a late night or something like that. He would find a way to get their phone number. He would call these people and say, hi, this is George Carlin. Like he'd leave a voicemail. He left a voicemail. On, you know, and Lewis started late. Lewis didn't, wasn't a stand-up comic young. He started, he started in his started 50s. In his 50s yeah. yeah, he started in his 50s. So my dad sees him. My dad leaves Lewis a voicemail. Lewis was not home. Hi, this is George Carlin. Just want to let you know, I think what you're doing is great. Fantastic. Da, 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 da. Is there any chance I could get any more? Do you have anything on tape? Can I watch anything? Da, 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 da. <laughs> and of course, Lewis now has this voicemail and has to like play it for his parents. Like, play, you know, like it's really, really happened. Um, so, you know, I knew that he had done that for Lewis also. Um, Bill, I knew he respected and everything because he was on Bill's show a lot and could really, you know, speak his mind on Bill's shows. Um, so, so anyway, when dad died, I ended up coming, sitting there with Gary, I don't know, maybe two months after dad died and Gary and I went to lunch because we started talking because Gary's the one who called me the day after my dad died. Didn't know who he was. I mean, I knew who he was. I just had never met him. And Gary and I ended up on the phone right after my dad's death crying on the phone together and we had like an hour-long conversation and if any of you've seen the zen diaries of gary shandling you understand the kind of human he is so gary and i went out to lunch and 
I knew Gary would get this. I just trusted that Gary would understand that. And it was something I could not say to anybody at the time, except for my husband, which was, I love my dad very much, but I finally feel like this is the first time in my life that I have a chance to be an artist. There was just, he, he was the center of the solar system. He was my sun and moon. He was everything. He created so much heat and so much light in my life that there was no, absolutely no room for me. And he didn't do it consciously, but he also was, and I really feel this, that in order to be a, a, an uber successful, original, ballsy, mind-shifting artist in the world, you have to have a level of narcissism. It has to be about the work first. You can love your wife, you can love your kid, you can love your family life. But um, my dad was from a different generation. And, you know, there weren't, I mean, he did go to teacher parent conferences when he could. <laughs> he never saw me perform as a kid. He was always on the road. Um, and so there was this, I really got that it was like, and I'm not saying he is Picasso, but I get it. It's like people like that have to kind of let the muse run their lives. And I paid a price for it, and he paid a huge price for it physically and emotionally. Um, but if I, if, if there's like, if there is reincarnation and some sort of karma and you pick your parents or whatever, I'm glad I picked my parents, you know, I'm glad to be a part of the support system and the light in his life that helped him do that. And I know he, he cared deeply for me and was so proud of me and talked about me to everyone. You know, people after he died would come to me and say, oh, my God, your dad loves you so much. He's so proud of you. He's always telling us what he's up, what you're up to and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, really? Like, I can barely get a luncheon with him every six weeks. <laughs> like, really? He thinks about me that much? Like, I didn't know. But but also the artistic narcissist thing. It was like, I just knew that I had to, there was some sort of non-permission to go there. And, um, and that's okay. And that's okay. And at 45, I was ready for it. I'd done a lot of personal work on myself. So I was actually ready for it. I wasn't ready for it before that. One of the things also that struck me, and again, I hope you don't mind me getting this deep. Your mom passes away, and then he meets Sally Wade. Mm -hmm. You're flesh and blood. He is working hard. He's killing himself. He's living the life of a writer. He's a genius. But then you know that he meets her, and he has enormous amount of attention for her and the notes and the letters and the cards and the, I mean, the attention was almost like, I think to myself or any man should think to themselves if they want a successful relationship to give the amount of attention and love and thoughtfulness in terms of notes and things to a woman that lets them know that she's the only one. Mm -hmm. But you're also a woman and you're his daughter and you're 
saying you're lucky if you got a lunch every six weeks. <laughs> yeah. How do you handle that then? And how do you resolve that conflict afterwards? Yeah. So at he he waited a year. He had met her sometime after my mom died, told her that I'm mourning for one year, my wife. And then at the year's time, he called her up. I was under no illusion that my parents' marriage was a perfect thing. They were married when my mom died, but they had gone through hell and back probably three times. And they were really more companions than anything. Um, I mean, they were soulmates on a lot of ways, too. I mean, the, the origin story of my parents meeting and their first few years together is it's it's kind of fairy tale material. And it was it was a beautiful, beautiful bonding. And my dad wouldn't be George Carlin without a woman like that in his life. I remember one special where he brought her out on stage. It was one of the specials he did in the round. That was that was the, yeah, that was his second HBO. And she had gotten sober the year before. And so she I believe Marty Colner and Marty Colner directed that Uncle Marty, we call him (laughs) in my family, who also directed Dane Cook special. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, So, yeah. So Sally comes in and I'm my initial reaction is how do you find out about dad starts dating her and he tells me something like I'm seeing someone. How long after? Because it was exactly a year after mom died and he started seeing her. He doesn't tell me for a few months. He knows. He says, I'm seeing someone. And then he starts to tell me and he starts to get all gushy about it and everything. And I'm like, first of all, you know, no one wants to hear about their parents. <laughs> sex life or anything like that. It's just this is way too much. So he's talking about a sex life. A little bit. Just a little bit. Like, oh, it's great. And, you know, because I know my parents. You know, anyway, so he's gushing and gushing and gushing. And I am. Yeah, I feel at first I just I just lost my mother. And now I'm going to lose what we called the three musketeers in my family. My dad called us the three musketeers. We made it through hell and back as a family because we stuck together. And even though my mom was dead for a year, we were still the three musketeers because my mom's presence was, you know, it's about our relationship. And as I say in my solo show, um, you know, it was that lovely enmeshment triangle we all learn about in psychology. You know, it's like... I could do the triangle. I could do the three musketeers. And then Sally comes in. It's this fourth thing. And it's like, I don't know how to do a square. I don't know how to add this extra thing. It's like, it's not part of my psyche yet. So I had a a good six months of really not knowing how to deal with it and felt betrayed, felt abandoned. Uh, And a part of me also knew that my dad, that year after my mom died, went into a deep depression he has serious heart disease, and I thought, he's going to go. He's going to let go, and he's going to go. And suddenly he had vitality and life and energy and purpose, and I thought, okay. So some part of this is literally about vitality, about life force. But as the daughter, I was pissed off, and yet as the grown-up woman, I knew this was the very work that was my next work to do as an adult, which was actually becoming an adult and separating from my parents. So the night I meet her, my dad's doing, he's about to do an HBO special. He's working his last bit out at the comedy store, invites all local people to this workout session. 
and he says Sally's going to be there. After my mom died, she left lots of jewelry and sweaters. I got all my mom's personal stuff like that. I handed out all of her sweaters and jewelries to all of her female friends. They all had my mom's jewelry. A lot of these people were invited to that comedy store show. They all knew that Sally was going to be there. They all wore my mom's jewelry in solidarity of me to like know that like, we've got your back, girl. You're okay. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Hey, everybody, and I wanted to thank some of the sponsors on the podcast, starting with AquaTrue. If you haven't bought this countertop water purification system, you have to do so. It's incredible. It turns tap water into your favorite bottled water instantly. It saves you thousands and thousands of dollars. It gets rid of all those plastic bottles that you have in your trash. Thousands and thousands of listeners have bought these. Everybody loves it. Not one complaint. It's incredible. I haven't bought a bottle of water in years since I got this, and you won't either. And if you go right now to industrystandardwater.com and type in the promo code Barry, you'll immediately get a $100 discount. A $100 discount and start enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever had. I guarantee it. Lastly, the air doctor. I don't know what the air inside your house is like, but the air inside my house, it feels heavy at times before I got this product. And now it got rid of all the bad air in my house, the dust, the pet hair, the pollen. It just gets rid of all the contaminants circulating through your home. And for me, when I got this product, it was amazing the difference that I found in the air in my house. And it's normally $600 and you can check Amazon right now and you'll see. But for all of you listening today, I can offer you $300 off. $300. Just go to airdoctorpro.com and type in the promo code Barry. That's airdoctorpro.com, promo code Barry, and save $300 and get rid of all the bad toxins in your house and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. So George invites these people to come see this sacred stuff he's been working on for a long time he trusts all of them to come in the audience and that they'll give the reaction 
that he wants an honest reaction. Mm-hmm. Not like, hey, we're just going to laugh when it's not funny or if there's places that are dead or whatever. Yeah, and he's worked this out all year. I mean, this is going to yeah. be the show in a month, yeah. probably. Yeah. So, But he invites them. Mm-hmm. Yet what they do is they wear items of your mom's that he can see and he might recognize even when he's on stage looking down in the front row yeah I, and I don't, so how maybe. is that going to make him feel safe and great doing this set yeah i i think it was uh, more subtle than that i mean if he if he would even notice i don't think so people who are going on stage and doing their you know the work is not going to I don't think that was even on their radar. It was, you know, and it was subtle jewelry. It wasn't like, you know, a big five diamond (laughs) carat diamond ring or anything like that. But it was much more about supporting me and being in solidarity just to let people know that we, you know, because my mother was beloved by comics because she produced, um, you know, the young Comics show for HBO for years. Talent produced that and was Martin worked for Marty Colner throughout all of that, too. And so there was a comics who absolutely loved my mom and adored her because she had discovered them or championed them. So tell me what you're feeling inside. Oh, I'm a five wreck. Five minutes or 10 I'm minutes a wreck. before you know you have to meet her. I'm a wreck. I'm a total, I'm a total wreck. I'm not ready for this. This is the worst night of my life kind of feeling. And do you know what she looks like? No. Okay. So you're going to the comedy store. Presumably he's trying out the set in the 400 seat main room. Yes. Presumably, there's 400 people there. There is, for sure. Okay, and there's a backstage area, but I would think that at that night, you might not go backstage. Oh, no, that's where we were going to meet. So, we all, so you know, you go backstage in the comedy store, and I didn't hang out at the comedy store a lot, and I just remember going backstage and thinking, this is where Sam Kinison snorted all that coke. <laughs> Because the table, I mean, it is literally back black lacquer yes! room. It is like black and lacquer, and it's just, it's so 80s. And it's, I did a lot of cocaine in the 80s, and it's just like, it's a nightmare on that level. But so we were all laughing about that and stuff. And then I see, I know who, I see Sally across the room. I know it's her. Um, and uh, the first flash I have is who's that person who looks just like my mother? Because she's got high cheekbones and blonde hair. And from a darkened room across the room, she has the main features of my mother. And I thought, oh, my dad has a type. And in that moment, something was relieved for me when I realized that that my dad was like any other person. And not that she's not a unique wonderful creative smart person in in her own right but it was like I suddenly got like oh dad has a type and that just it took the pressure off of it in some way like oh dad needs a companion and that's his type and of course he'd be attracted to that particular look and um and most men his age who who are widows end up within a year having a girlfriend or a woman in their life because they don't know how to function without that mirror of them all the time. And it just made perfect. It all made perfect sense for me. It was like, Oh, this is dad working his shit out. This isn't about him abandoning me or it's, this has nothing to do with me. Actually, this is my dad being an adult doing what he has to do in his own life to get his emotional needs met. 
for him to like fall head over heels in love with her and be like, I mean, I, my parents met when my mom was 21 and my dad was 23. So they're, that's young. And I thought, my dad's a teenager. He was acting like a teenager, actually. They were always texting each other. And they were, I mean, it was just, um, and so I, at that moment, I was like, oh, I've got my work to do. I need to go and like individuate psychologically from my parents and, and my father. And um, dad's going to go off and do that. And this, he still loves me. And I'm, I'm the apple of his eye. And I'm, you know, I'm, you know, used to say, you know, you don't lick it off the rocks, kid. You know, it's like, I'm, I'm his, I'm the keeper of the sacred DNA, he once said, you know, so, um, okay, it's all good now, you know, and then Sally and I got to know each other. And but you're there, you're backstage, you see her take our audience through the meeting. Do you walk up to her first? Yeah, Does she walk up to I you? I think I think we did. I don't really remember even. I mean, it was awkward, really awkward. I mean, I'm, I think it was way more awkward for her than it was for me. You know, I mean, you know, and she, and she's really sensitive, so she would be really aware of that. So I saw immediately walking up to her and her. She's got some social awkwardness anyway. Um, it was like oh, she's not a gold digger, or she's not a this, or she's not a that. I mean, you know, it was like all these kind of things that you're worried about, the person that's going to come and meet your, you know, be and with so your dad. so immediately I felt she was the exact opposite of all those I things. felt like she was like, oh, she's a sensitive human, and she's not, she's not here to, like, take my dad away from me or anything like that, you know. And uh, so, you know, and if she has some other agenda or whatever, it, I certainly don't know it and have never known it, but... Um, you know, I think she was genuinely completely bowled over by my dad. I mean, you know, who wouldn't? <laughs> who wouldn't be? <laughs> Do you feel like she did for your dad's last 10 years what your dad did for Gary Shandling's career? I think that she... I definitely give the love that they had the amount of love and connection they have I believe that it did save my dad's life he had serious heart disease and I think he probably would have died five years earlier if he hadn't had her in his life and they didn't have that sustaining connection um artistically my dad was who he was you know he she didn't change the trajectory of his art in any way but I think she gave him a quality of life in other areas of life that he had been missing there was clearly a huge void there with the amount of energy that poured out of him towards her um and and I do believe that it it was a, a you know one of the main reasons that he was able to live another 10 years uh, now you have been married for 26 years? Uh, yeah, we got married in 95. Uh, we met in 92. We started dating. So we've been together 27 years. Yeah. Which is incredible. Yeah, it is. You know, when you get it right, you get it right. I'd had a first marriage, which was a uh, fucking train wreck. Uh, I met him at 18 and he was 29 and he was a um, he was married with a kid uh he was on probation for 
a federal weapons charge for designing silencers for AR-15s for doctors and lawyers in Beverly Hills. Dad, mom, guess who's coming to dinner? And he, and he was a Coke dealer. So yeah, and within four months, he was living with me in my bedroom in my parents' house in Brentwood. And they were okay with it? Well, you know, that's uh, okay is a broad thing, but we, my parents had enabled me for a long time and they just continued the enabling and... My mother didn't want to, you know, my mother didn't want to lose me. You know, her mom kind of set rules for her and kind of lost my mom. And, and my, and my dad was, you know, my dad, he was kind of laissez-faire guy and like, all right, I guess this is what Kelly's doing now. I guess we're doing this. Uh, No one sat me down and went, are you sure? Was he the first person to give you Coke? Oh, no. Oh, no, I went to, I, w- I grew up in West LA and went to Crossroads. I was a partier since I was 15, so. So 15, you were doing cocaine. 15, I started smoking, 14, 15, I started smoking weed. But yeah, absolutely, by then, you know, Quaaludes and Coke, yeah. I mean, it was the 70s, you know, it was 1978 was when I was 15. So it was good times on Sunset Strip. <laughs> now, your marriage now, mm-hmm. you grew up a child of alcoholic parents, an adult child. Absolutely, yes. 100%. So you are a full-blown adult child. By the time alcoholic. I was about five, yeah, I was. Yeah. A, I was having to be an adult, yeah. And so, most people who are in that situation, it carries on throughout their life. But I see what semblance of tiny bit of time I see here, and I see it's very normal. How did you not get sucked into that pattern? How did you break the pattern? Well, so I was with Andrew at 18 and, you know, we had the the Coke he had was so pure we had to cut it and we had mixing bowls of it. And so I did a lot of Coke those first couple of years and he was very controlling and very narcissistic and and very smart. He was a genius, brilliant guy. But um, by the time I was 25, about seven years into it, I knew uh, I was... I was just wasting my potential, purely wasting my potential. I dropped out of I dropped out of UCLA before I met him. So I think that was part of it, too. I was kind of depressed when I met him. And so he was a big distraction, but I was in it. I was married to him at that point. And uh, I knew I had to get out. I mean, I had severe panic attacks when I was in my marriage with him and my world became smaller and smaller. So I plotted my escape route at 25 and I knew I had to get out of there. So I, I went like back. sleeping with the enemy. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't ever physically abusive, but he was just a lot of psychological, emotional stuff. And he could not maintain sobriety, no matter how many times I walked away from the cocaine and everything. And really, I, you know, drinking was never an issue for me. Um, but uh, he couldn't do it. He was full on ADHD addicted and all of that. And um so I went back to UCLA. I, I went back at 25 and started my degree, my bachelor's. But how did you stop doing coke? I just stopped. I mean, I just knew. You just stopped. Well, you know, when you watch your parents go through it, you know, I, I've always had within me a, a breaking system. Like even as a, even in high school, there were certain things I did not do in high school. I would not do. I would never get too drunk. I would never get too much. Like it, I, I, I had my limits. And then Andrew really his lifestyle and everything pushed me over the limits. And I knew, you know, luckily, even though my parents were, you know, chemically altered at points in my life, you know, I had a good foundation. I had a good 
head on my shoulders. And my mother had gotten sober when I was 11. So I knew the world of AA. I knew Al-Anon. I knew that. I knew you could do it. I knew there was a path away from it. Um, And so I did. I just, I mean, it was back and forth and back and forth a little bit, but eventually I just, I knew, I knew I had to save my own life. At some point you just have to save your own life with these things. And luckily I had that inside of me. Some people don't, but I did. But you know how there's always that moment that happens everybody has the moment so what was your moment that happened where you're like okay i'm out well he um i'm not just talking about the relationship i'm talking about the drugs yeah i think for me the moment was his uh he he had gotten to the point where he was i don't think he was even doing coke anymore i had stopped i i the reason i had to stop was because i was having rolling panic attacks all day and if you have panic attack syndrome you know you ain't putting anything in your body that's going to make panic attacks come on and cocaine is not something that calms you down so i had to manage the panic i had to manage the anxiety and there was I, I physically could not do it anymore. I could not take the drug in anymore. And I was, you know, past the point of getting lured in by it. Like, oh, Michael's coming over and you know what that means type of thing. I started just removing myself from the situation, started removing myself physically from the house, went back to UCLA, started getting my degree, started building a life outside of that small house in Santa Monica with that insanity in it. And once that happened, once I knew I could function in the real world and I did really well, I was on the dean's list and I was, you know, just I was a shining star at UCLA. Then I was like, okay, now I know I've, I've who I am again. And because I was always a good, very good student. And, uh, you know, it just it kind of like there was two different straws for the whole thing, too, which one of which was Andrew went like psychotic one night, berserk on whatever the hell he was on. And um, just went insane. And I just literally could not be in his presence anymore. And I uh, left him and he ended up taking gun. He had a bunch of guns and um, shot up. He had guns in your father and mother's house. No, no, no. We now lived in Santa Monica. We only lived in my parents' house for like two years. Did he have guns? Then my daddy bought me a house in Santa Monica. (laughs) (laughs) But he had guns always. He he was obsessed with guns. So he had guns in your mom and dad's house. Oh, he did back then too. Yeah, and he bought guns for my parents. My dad wanted protection and stuff. My dad had stalkers and stuff like that. So, so yeah, my dad had a shot, a sawed-off shotgun that Andrew bought for him, uh, and you know had the gun until the day he died. A sawed-off shotgun. Yeah, yeah. It's it's. I mean, it's 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 a smaller shotgun. It's got a pistol grip on it, so you can maneuver inside of a house with it very easily and. And it's really easy to shoot. So if someone is coming at you, you can kill them. You know, my dad had no qualms about if he needed to defend himself, he would do that. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. 
with exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. So Um, your dad, if you look at a lot of the specials, it was the anti establishment kind of comedy right a lot of it right he was for guns he wasn't for gun control yeah i mean we do live in america you are legally allowed to own a gun i mean he was definitely wanted gun control one of the routines that is one of my favorite routines of all time that isn't your dad's when i first saw it i thought to myself and clearly i'm wrong i thought to myself if anybody who has passed away could have written and performed this bit as well or any better, it would have been George Carlin. And I'm talking about Jim Jeffries' gun control bit. Yeah, yeah, and I don't know where my dad would have come down eventually on all of that with with the... I mean, I think my dad's take on things are always contrarian, so he he never lockstepped with progressives or conservatives or libertarians. I mean, he pissed everyone off because he was such an original thinker. I mean, do you think he would have given up his guns knowing what's happening in the world today? No, I think he would have. I think if you own a gun and it's licensed and you keep it away from children, I think guns are okay. If you hoard guns and own AR-15s, I mean, I don't think you need to own a fucking AR-15. But if you own a pistol or a shotgun, I think it's a perfectly legitimate thing to have a gun in your house. But you're talking in a way like people don't change their minds you know nick DePaulo was a democrat now he's a republican right and i can't tell you where my dad would come down on something these days i mean there's just no way for me to do that because he was an original thinker and if i knew that i could go on stage and be george carlin but i'm not uh so i don't i really don't know but i know that he knew that he wanted to be able to defend himself in his own home so he had a gun so you get out you're doing well How long before you meet your husband, then you realize, ah. Oh, I'd already met my husband. So the year before I I left Andrew, I worked temporarily at my friend's production company. And Bob was working there as a sound man. And we went out and had lunch one day. And I remember sitting there and we talked about books and movies and all sorts of things. Things I've... I'd never talked to my other my my husband with. And when he asked you out to lunch, did you think to yourself as you were sitting there... Is this a date? Does he think this is a date? No, no, no. I knew. He he knew I was Teresa's best friend, my best friend who worked he worked for, and he knew that I was married and all of that. And I didn't, I, I didn't, I was a, I'm a very loyal person. I would have never have cheated on my husband. Um, and no, I just saw it as a chance to go out to dinner with, uh, go out to lunch with someone who's different and have a conversation. And I'd already been at UCLA for quite a few years. So for me, it was like, I'd already been socializing with all sorts of people. And so it was just, so we just had a great conversation. And all I remember thinking was, oh, I guess this is what a normal conversation is like with a 
guy because I didn't because my my ex he wasn't my ex yet but he was so opinionated and he was so controlling that you couldn't have an opinion you could only hear his opinion and then have him try to convince you that he was right so there was no space for you in the world and it was and he was not interested in the world at all he just had prejudices about everything so it was just this mind expanding thing like oh this is what a, a, a conversation with a normal man could be like in my life. So that was like plucked away somewhere. Then I left my husband. When you're at lunch, there's this old expression. They say that a woman knows within five minutes of really meeting somebody if they're going to be with them. No, like I said, to completely loyal to my current husband, had no, no, was not allowing myself to have any kind of fantasy or conscious thought of potential partners did your mom and dad have the same gene you had no from what i learned after my dad died is that he had many affairs on the road and that my mom had a lot of revenge affairs (laughs) when she found out about it a lot of those went down in the 70s um from what i understand there was someone in canada that he would visit every once in a while too don't know who that is uh, this worried me, wondering if a love child would come forward after my dad died and I'd have a half-brother or sister. But um, I guess my dad fooled around on my mom and my mom found out about it in the 70s and it was a big contention. of A lot of their arguments was about it, I guess. I wasn't made aware of that specifically. I mean, I know a couple things had gone down. So, But my parents stayed together, too. I mean, my parents were very loyal. My dad was probably... I mean, the loyalty card, my dad was one of the loyalest person in the world. Like once you became a part of his circle, it was very hard for him to, even if he needed to create healthy boundaries around you, it was hard for him to say no to people. So my parents had a lot of hanger honors kind of people in their life. And um, it really dragged them down in a lot of ways, especially my mother. She was very, very kind and generous woman. Um, to a fault at times. So, um, but once I, but yeah, once I left my husband and it was official and we were getting, I knew we were officially separated and he was accepting the fact that I was actually not coming back. Um, about two months after I walked out the door, I went out to a party, my friend Teresa's house. And I said to myself, I was 29. And I said to myself, I'm going to get laid tonight. And because I'd not had sex in four years because I did not want to have sex with my husband because I was no longer in love with him and actually hated his guts for four years, but couldn't, didn't have the courage to leave. And so I'm like, I'm going to get laid. I'm 29 years old. I haven't had sex in four years. I'm going to go out and get laid. Went to a party, went to a barbecue. And lo and behold, this person, Bob comes showing up at the party and he and I start talking and we start flirting. And I think, this is the one I'm going to have sex with tonight. <laughs> so party winds down. We're on the couch. We're watching SNL. You know, we're kind of doing that on the couch thing, putting his arm around me like we're going to make the move. At his house? Nope. Or- Teresa's house still. We're like the party's winding down. We've all been watching SNL. People have been slowly leaving. Now it's like, okay, now I got to, you know, what's going to happen? He's got the vibe, obviously. Uh, this is before cell phones. Teresa's phone rings. It's my husband. He's at the emergency hospital. He's having a diabetic. He was diabetic. He's having a diabetic incident. 
and he they will not release him unless uh, next of kin comes and picks him up at the emergency room because he wants he doesn't want treatment he wants to leave and he goes you have to come pick me up and in that moment i thought to myself this is the last thing i will ever be doing for my ex-husband and i went and picked him up and did not say a word to him and um ended up meeting bob 6 weeks later and uh we ended up uh spending uh, 3 days in bed together and we've been together ever since <laughs> Why did you wait six weeks? Uh, because I was busy and there was a party happening and I felt I was 18 the last time I had dated. I'd, I'd, I was a serial monogamist. I mean, that's really who I am. And I'd never been like a dating kind of a person and I didn't want to go out in the dating pool and... And I had a crush on him. I knew I liked him. So I was like calling Teresa. Does he think I'm cute? I think he's cute. I mean, I was like 18 again. And that's why. And then it was a party. We met at the party and that was it. The rest is 26 years of history. <laughs> and that wraps up part one of our podcast. I just wanted to thank my incredible partners, starting with Aquatrue, the revolutionary miniature countertop water purification system that works straight out of the box. Plug it in, fill it with tap water, and immediately turn your faucet into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You can get $100 off when you go to industrystandardwater.com and just type in the promo code Barry and start enjoying the best water you've ever had and never buy another bottle of water again. And I Killed JFK, the groundbreaking film about the only living person who admitted to killing Kennedy. Go to IKillJFK.com, buy the film and the rare interviews with five of the last living experts, and I guarantee it'll change your mind about what happened that day. And the Air Doctor, the innovative portable air purification system which will change your overall quality of life. It instantly removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and other contaminants circulating in your home. Normally $600, and if you don't believe me, check Amazon right now. But for a limited time, I can offer you 50% off. That's a $300 savings. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. And that wraps up part one of two episodes. You can check out the next episode this coming Thursday. And here's a preview of the next episode. Artists learn by getting up and failing, and I never gave myself the chance to fail because I couldn't. I, I could not let myself fail because my dad was perfect in my eyes. And so I didn't start failing until late into my 30s and 40, you know, into my 40s, really, to letting myself fail as an artist. So fail, fail big, fail often, and... um and fail with joy. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money. Drop there. Fancy call. All the people love you. Cause you're going for life is for the dreamer. 
never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support and have a great day.